Hello, welcome to the latest Lancet podcast. It's Friday the 16th of June and I'm Francesca Toey. This week we're focusing on a world report about women's access to abortion services in the US and the ongoing legislative battles in some of the US states. Let's hear from Gavin Cleaver, who wrote the world report, in an interview with Julie Cantor. So I'm delighted to be joined today by Julie Cantor. Julie, please will you tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, thanks for having me. I have a background in both medicine and law. I graduated from both medical school and law school, having been interested in the intersection of those topics. When I was in medical school, I would um, give lectures on topics in women's health and the law or just general issues in health and, and law. And now I teach a course at the UCLA School of Law here in Los Angeles on medical ethics, reproduction, and the law, and actually in the fall I'll be teaching an overview course on on health law. So, Julie, maybe you could give us a little bit of an overview. Uh, How different is it to access an abortion, say, in New York than in Texas? Well, it's, it's very different, at least based on, I think, state law and based on culture. You're in places where just the general points of access are different, the ways that the availability, the number of providers who will help patients with abortions, and the number of restrictions. For example, in Texas, they have mandated counseling on issues that have dubious science to back them up, if you could say back them up at all, Um, things like breast cancer links or negative psychological effects, things that the science really doesn't bear out at all. Um, But in Texas, there are laws about mandated counseling on such information. So it's not only is it difficult in terms of the number of providers and the general culture of access in places like Texas versus places like New York, but you're also potentially going to hear information that doesn't have scientific backing presented in the guise of informed consent. And so this access feels kind of qualitatively different. Yeah, and there's a recent new book about these kinds of issues and how at some point when you have laws that restrict access and provide information, misinformation about the procedure, that it really starts to feel like punishment um, and and being able to access a legal right, being able to, to access a procedure that's legal, generally speaking, becomes incredibly difficult and it becomes really a hollow right. And so why do, why do you think that this is an argument that really feels like it won't go away? I think that is such a good question. Maybe that is something that if if we had the answer to that, we would really have the key. Um, I I think that there are just people who have very strong and disparate views, perhaps tied tightly into religious beliefs, perhaps tied tightly into um, other kinds of beliefs. And they're really just, they seem at least at this point in time to be completely unshakable. It's like people talking past each other, not being able to get on the same page, um, not being able to have any kind of agreement at all. And we have people um, now coming into the American government who are going to be working in areas of healthcare who have beliefs about contraception or beliefs about um, the human reproductive course that aren't actually um, moored in science. So it's going to be a very, potentially a very strange and, and 
uh, I guess, interesting time in American politics and health policy. Why does this issue persist? I mean, I think there are probably many theories and many very smart people with very smart theories. One that comes to mind would be um, you could look to the United States Supreme Court and you could see in the opinions based on um, abortion laws where the United States Supreme Court reviews state laws or other kinds of national laws for their compliance with the U.S. Constitution, which is our baseline. Things aren't allowed. That sets the floor. Laws aren't allowed to be unconstitutional. But the problem is that numerous justices have had numerous opinions and lots of different legal theories about how to analyze these laws or how they fall out in terms of constitutionality. And that's I think categorically different than some other kinds of difficult social issues that this country has wrestled with that have been um, essentially rendered to a historical relic. For example, the desegregation of schools in the South, um, a very contentious issue, many protests, violence, kind of a parade of, of horribles about that. And yet in the 1950s, the Supreme Court really stepped in and spoke with one voice in a series of two, at least, nine zero decisions with the opinion um, in Brown versus Board of Education written by the Chief Justice himself at the time. And so really putting the moral weight of the, an entire branch of government, the Supreme Court and the judiciary being that, that branch, um, behind it and speaking with one voice, with one opinion, with one theory, one argument, one legal analysis, and saying, this is what we're going to do. We're going to desegregate these schools with all deliberate speed. And I think in contrast, you haven't seen that kind of language or behavior from the Supreme Court. Now, of course, there's a fair argument. You could say, well, the Supreme Court doesn't have as much of an effect on American values and the American way of life and these controversial issues, but it certainly is a fair argument to say if the Supreme Court simply stopped hearing these kinds of cases or had a series of 9-0 decisions one way or another, um, that people, that the sort of fuel to the fire would be cut off and that people would perhaps become less zealous about, you know, one way or the other, and that it would be finally, like it would be a decision that puts the matter to rest finally. Um, that's hypothetical. I don't know that that would be the case. Maybe it wouldn't be, but it seems like it's a fairly reasonable idea that if the Supreme Court spoke with one voice consistently over time, that it would send a message about this particular issue, just like it could send a message with other um, issues that happen to have been socially and politically controversial. Right, and that's a very important point, the kind of the, the necessity for gravity behind the, the Supreme Court decisions. And you know, moving on to the recent appointment of uh, Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court, and obviously the prospect that further Supreme Court justices may be appointed over the next few years, do you feel that there is an appreciable trajectory? I, I mean, I think people on one side or the other sort of hope that there will be a, a, a change. I think people who are who want to see abortion laws struck down. Mostly they speak of Roe versus Wade because it established that right. But to be fair, the Casey, Planned Parenthood versus Casey um, opinion from 1992 sort of re-regulated the way that federal courts needed to evaluate these kinds of laws. So you have to think of this whole trajectory and this category of cases relating to abortion access and abortion rights. 
I think certainly people um, on the conservative side of the aisle would want a, a new justice to have a different opinion than the current justices who've said that, you know, the right that was established by Roe and reestablished by Casey continues and it's not going anywhere. I think there are people who really believe that if they had the right um, personnel on the court, the right set of justices on the court, they could reverse decisions that established abortion rights. And I think people hold out hope for that. Um, and again, I think it undermines the integrity of the institution when it becomes more of it seems more like a political body where if you just get the right people kind of, they're not elected, but, uh, you know, put in there that they get appointed and then confirmed by the Senate, that things would be markedly different. Um, it makes it seem like a political body as opposed to a body that interprets this unassailable rule of law. So certainly people have um, hope on, you know, depending on what their political views are and what issues they find are really important to them, that new justices will bring a new day or that new justices will, you know, keep the ship sailing in the direction that it's been, depending on your view. And I think on some level it's unfortunate because it really should be um, a, a body that focuses on rights that are, you know, inassailable, that rights that exist over time, rights that don't change depending on who's the president and who's political party is in power, it should be more of a sense of universal rights that continue to exist and are stable over time um, in order to have a real sense of institutional integrity. No, absolutely. And it also seems on some level as well that when states are making policy in this in this area, some of them are kind of resorting to bad science almost. Would you think, would you say that's fair? Yeah, I think that is fair. I mean, there are, you know, lots of studies get published that if you have a really strong background in statistics and you understand how to create studies, that they really aren't terrific studies. And, and there's a saying, you know, there's statistics lie and those, you know, those kinds of sentiments out there. So I think you can probably find a study to support um, an idea that you want. But the question is, was it a, was it a good study? And um, that's what really is important. And I think um, there's a recent article by Professor Chero that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine just this week. Um, her name is R. Alta Chero, and she's a professor at the University of Wisconsin Law School, talking about just this issue and that it really is troubling um, in a moment of, or hopefully on an era, hopefully more of a moment of alternative facts that we seem to be having policymakers that are now looking to alternative science and that that's really a way to make bad policy. Science should be um, something that we can all look to and agree upon and whether you want to use that to support an argument one way or the other, we shouldn't be massaging science to change um, policy outcomes and especially when things are not grounded in science and then to use those really untethered studies and bring that information into patient care because if you're telling people things that aren't true and the government requires you as a physician to tell patients things that are just simply not true or really dubious or, or based on false science or junk science, it really undermines your a patient's trust in not only an individual provider but arguably the entire medical system. I mean, you have to have a trusting relationship to tell people who you don't know who are wearing white coats about your most personal history, and you rely on them to give you facts and data that are not colored by 
science, uh, sorry, not colored by politics that are just really the facts, you know, just the facts, ma'am, kind of thing. Um, and when we conflate those issues, especially as a medical community, I think it really does a disservice to patients and to the community overall. It shouldn't be that you get a certain set of information from a doctor in one state versus different information from another. You know, the science should be the science and we all should be on the same page. That's an incredibly important thought to end on. Julie, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Gavin. I was really happy to be here. I appreciate your time.